Hi, Brandon. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming and making the account and everything. Yeah, um, this is uh, this is cool. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh, we still have uh, like seven minutes or so. So in the meantime, okay. I'm sharing on Twitter and so on that we're studying, inviting people in. So, cool. okay. Hi everyone, uh, we will start in around five minutes. Uh, thank, uh, thank you so you. much for coming and um, feel free to share the room if you or bring people in if you think they would be interested. And uh, yeah, we'll start soon. Looking forward to it.
Yeah, welcome everyone. Uh, we will start in around two minutes and uh, thank you for coming. This is a really interesting topic and I think, uh, yeah, I don't want to take anything away from the presentation. So yeah, if you know people that you think would be interested in this room, feel free to share it and uh, we'll start in around a minute or so. Um, Brandon, I hope you're having a, a good day. Thank you for doing this again. <laughs> yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having what, me. Did you have issues making the comms? We recently had like uh, some people that had like issues when they just made the account to be able to like no, use the microphone and stuff. It was pretty straightforward, no issues. Okay, perfect. And maybe, <laughs> I don't know why it was like last week, like oh, we had a bunch of times like issues with people that just, oh, really? you know, just made the account, but maybe they fixed bugs. I don't know. Maybe they did. I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It used to be really easy. And then, yeah, as I said, for like a week, it was kind of annoying, but now I'm glad it's better. Yeah, great. Yeah, so what people will continue coming in, but I think we can slowly start with introduction and so on. Sure. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to Brandon here. Uh, it's so nice of you uh, to come. And before um, we start, let me give the audience like a brief introduction so they get to know you a little bit. Um, so uh, Brennan Miller, he is <clears throat> a PhD student um, in uh, neuroscience at the USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. And um, Miller studies mitochondrial genetics, neurodegeneration, and mitochondrial-derived peptides in the Cohen lab. And um, his research focuses on identifying the effect of mitochondrial single nucleotide polymorphism on novel mitochondrial-derived peptides in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And in his free time outside of the lab, uh, Brandon um, loves uh, to follow the um, Chicago Cubs, um, who were world champions in 2016 and um, likes to uh, work on baseball statistics and uh, plays a variety of sports. So uh, yeah, one day we have to do a room about baseball because <laughs> I am a, a European and I really don't get the game. So anyways. <laughs> Thank but, you, uh, Katerina, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, uh, usually we start with like a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. Yeah, of course. Perfect. Um, so how did you follow, like how did you figure out that you would like to become a scientist and also of course a baseball statistician, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for this talk today, um, that you wanted to become a scientist, was it something you always wanted to do or? Um, was there a teacher or a book or like a class you took and kind of sparked your interest? 
Yeah, you know, science wasn't really on my radar when I was going through high school, even when I first started my undergraduate uh, program. It, it just never really was on my brain, if, if you will. Uh, I started getting interested in just basic science and uh, metabolism and biology and neuroscience probably in my second year in college. And I was always interested in statistics and numbers and math. Uh, I also enjoyed writing and graphic design and everything. And I realized in the second and, and third year in college that science and being a scientist kind of mixes in all of those different traits that I do like. So I was fortunate in college to have worked in variety of different labs as a volunteer and I had good mentors and it kind of just fell into place. So uh, yeah, my second year in college is kind of where uh, I mentally committed, if you will, to going down this path. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't understand. Like, I could never understand also people that knew, like, already, let's say, in middle school, what they wanted to be. <laughs> was always yeah, in middle part. school, I wanted to play shortstop for the Cubs. So uh, <laughs> that did end up working out for me. So I had to change career paths, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's fun. Um, yeah and then how did you come to work in this field and how did you you know choose this field this project did the project choose you or was it hard was there something maybe like is there like a background story um you know behind the curtain story about this project and how you mm -hmm. ended up doing it so I was always very interested in mitochondria. I, I was specifically interested in mitochondrial DNA and genetics. I thought it was always fascinating that you have this organelle in your cell that has its separate genome from the nucleus. That was always really interesting to me, even throughout uh, my undergraduate work. So then when I was applying for graduate programs, I really wanted to center on studying mitochondrial genetics. And I worked with uh, early on, a lot of different labs in this project who had big genetic omics pipelines, but they weren't looking at uh, mitochondrial DNA. So I was able to make a lot of friends and collaborate with a lot of different groups that we were uh, able to share different ideas. And ultimately, uh, the, the start of the project was on the idea that mitochondrial DNA and its genome has some type, some relevance to uh, neurodegeneration and ways to go about studying that was largely influenced by a lot of different people I was able to work with. Yeah, interesting. I also think that mitochondria are really fascinating. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to your um, you know, summary of your research or, or talk. Um, so the link, um, I hope everyone can access it. Please let me know if you have issues accessing it, but it should be available for everyone to view. And um, yeah, um, Brandon, the stage is yours. Thank you.
Thank you. I appreciate the uh, invite again. Um, so I do have, I see the link here. So I have uh, just eight slides. I think I have 30 minutes or so. So uh, I'll spend 30 minutes talking about the background of this project, what we found, maybe some personal highlights from the paper, and then takeaways and next steps beyond uh, this paper. So before I start on the uh, first figure or first finding, just taking a step back to lay some of the uh, original thinking from our lab and other labs, there's a growing focus in the field that the human genome uh, encodes for what's called microproteins. And these microproteins are what they kind of sound like. They're, they're small proteins. And the arbitrary, sort of arbitrary cutoff of what a microprotein is, is that under 100 amino acids. And within the last probably 10 years, this topic has scaled up by several different labs, both in the US and internationally, uh, trying to find these microproteins. Now, in the early 2000s, when the Human Genome Project was wrapping up, there was attempts to characterize how many protein coding genes were in the human genome. And the ultimate number was around 20,000 or so, 20 to 25,000. But uh, the, the center number ended up being around 20,000. And this was on the concept that the human genome is very likely to exclusively encode for proteins over 100, 100 amino acids. And the thinking at the time was that these very small genes, these small microprotein genes, or otherwise called uh, small open breeding frames, they tend to evolutionary occur fast, and they tend just to have one axon. And so as a result, the confidence that these small open reading frames encode proteins or microproteins was really low. So as a result at the time, the thinking was to exclude these small open reading frames because introducing this list, which includes tens of thousands of microprotein possibilities, would introduce noise into genomic and proteomic discovery pipelines and it would increase the chance of getting false positives. Uh, and at, also at the time, computational power was not as robust as it is today. So introducing tens of thousands of these microproteins would make the process just go slower. So it was, it was definitely a, a fair assumption to not include these microproteins, small open running frame genes in different discovery pipelines. But recently within the past 10, 15 years, computational power has increased. Uh, biochemistry technology has increased, nucleotide sequencing has exponentially increased, and as a result, a lot of scientists, both in our group and then across again, you know, the U.S. and internationally, have looked back at some of these genomic databases, re-annotated them to include these previously left us open reading frames in an attempt to find which, one are, which ones are actually real, which ones actually create microproteins. Uh, our lab takes that same concept, but we look for microproteins exclusively in the mitochondrial genome. 
task, which operates under its own set of principles, including its transcriptional machinery. And within the mitochondrial genome, depending on how you annotate the uh, three-frame translation in which star codons you use, there is around potentially 500 plus or so of these microprotein possibilities. And the thinking is, how do you go from a list of 500 possibilities down to a few that might be encoding real microproteins or maybe more than a few? And one idea that our lab had was we can look for genetic variation throughout these small open rooting frames that segregate different disease phenotypes or really just any phenotypes across human populations. And the thinking was if there's genetic variation within small open rooting frames, that it suggests that there's a biological relevance to that microprotein. And it suggests that it makes sense to follow up on this experimentally to see if these hotspots, if you will, are uh, regions that do encode microproteins. So that was our starting point. We had the, we had the hypothesis that mitochondrial DNA variation would associate with neurobiological phenotypes, specifically neurodegeneration in the form of Alzheimer's disease, but also because the statistical power is so enormous in neuroimaging and brain structure, we also had the hypothesis that uh, mitochondrial DNA variation would predict brain structure in humans. And what we did was we looked at four different Alzheimer's disease cohorts, in addition to analyzing the UK Biobank cohort. Now the UK Biobank cohort is the largest neuroimaging and mitochondrial DNA database in the world. Currently there's around, with their neuroimaging data, around 20,000 uh, individuals who have had their brain scans. Um, uh, and they also are genotyped for uh, a few hundred mitochondrial single nucleotide polymorphisms or otherwise known as SNPs. And so what we did first was read the literature, see what's been done. And we found that in 2010, there was a paper published that suggested that a specific mitochondrial SNP in uh, the ND5 mitochondrial gene associated with Alzheimer's disease in the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative cohort, or otherwise known as ADNI. Uh, since 2010, ADME has added uh, several different phases. So what our group did is we went back into ADME and we just updated the database by including these new individuals who were enrolled in the cohort. We repeated exactly the methods that were used to find this mitochondrial SNP in the ND5 gene. And we were able to show that the effect size of the SNP was very similar. Uh, and that the effect size, particularly with the SNP, increased one's risk of Alzheimer's disease by about 50%. Then we went into three different cohorts, and we looked at the same SNP. Uh, the three cohorts are known as the ROSMAP cohort, uh, operated by Rush Medical College, as well as the LOAD ADC1 and 2 cohorts, and these are operated by NIAGADS, by the NIH. And we just asked the question, does the same SNP increase risk for Alzheimer's disease? 
And the ultimate answer was uh, it does, uh, more prominently in the ROSMAP cohort and uh, significantly, but with a less effect in the load in ADC 1 and 2 cohort. And this is all is illustrated in figure 1A and B. And what we also noticed was that these, which is particularly important and included in the supplementary section, was that these cohorts have allele frequency specificity, uh, which represents that these individual cohorts are polling populations with different mitochondrial genetic backgrounds, which makes statistics very difficult to do when you're trying to replicate different SNPs. <clears throat> and you're essentially modeling different genetic backgrounds, uh, which can introduce noise and variability in analyses, and perhaps one reason why uh, mitochondrial genetic analyses uh, don't replicate as well. It's influenced by its cohort specificity. So we did consider this in our analysis, but also we wanted to look at the same SNP in the UK Biobank with enormous statistical power uh, on, again, 20,000 individuals who had their brain scans. And uh, the group who operated this type of data is at the USC, and they're known as the Laboratory of Neuroimaging, uh, headed by Dr. Art Toga. And what we did with them was take this SNP that associated with Alzheimer's disease, and we asked the question, which brain regions over age span does the SNP predict to decline or degenerate? And the total number of neuroimaging phenotypes or outcomes was around 4,000. And this technique was named FIWAS, or Phenome-Wide Association Study. And ultimately what we found with this group was that the same SNP that predicted Alzheimer's disease also predicted accelerated thinning in the hippocampus and the entorhinal cortex in uh, the anterior and posterior stingulate volume regions. And in figure 1C, we're just illustrating one outcome, which is the parahippocampus, both the left and right hippocampus. And you can see if you're following along that over age on the x-axis, individuals with the SNP that previously associated with Alzheimer's disease also associated with just an accelerated thinning of these regions. So this SNP was originally annotated as an ND5 SNP, which encodes a protein in the complex one of the electron transport chain. But when we re-annotated the mitochondrial genome, we also saw that there is a potential microprotein gene or small open rooting frame that we called schmooze. Uh, we thought that name was kind of funny, so we went with schmooze. And we saw that this SNP that had all these associations changed the amino acid sequence of this schmooze microprotein. Now the schmooze microprotein is 58 amino acids. The SNP changes the 47th amino acid at, and it changes it from aspartic acid to aspartame, whereas the same SNP, which overlaps this ND5 complex one protein, uh, it does not change the sequence of that. So we thought this was interesting and we wanted to see if this SNP indeed altered, but more so specifically pinpointed whether the schmooze microprotein is a functional bioactive peptide microprotein, which is what we attempted to do in figure two or on slide three if you're following along. And you can see that one question we asked was, where does schmooze express? Is it in the brain? 
and is it in uh, specifically neuronal cells? And in figure A, we carried out a co-expression analysis looking at post-mortem RNA-seq data of uh, 200 plus brains in the temporal cortex. And we found that several different cellular processes, components, co-expressed, which moves, most of these were mitochondrial related, which makes sense. We have a mitochondrial gene that's co-expressing with mitochondrial related genes throughout the brain. And so we thought, okay, well, we have cellular compartments co-expressing with schmooze. Schmooze is encoded by the mitochondria. Let's go ahead and fractionate out mitochondria from neuronal cells. And let's develop an antibody against schmooze. And let's see if we can detect schmooze using Western blot, specifically in mitochondrial fractions. And since we're doing this, we might as well look at nuclear fractions as well. And what we found was that schmooze can be seen in Western blot using uh, our antibody that we developed at the predicted six kilodalton uh, molecular weight. Now in the field of microproteins, one of the um, strong points of emphasis is attempting to get mass spectrometry data uh, separate from using antibodies to detect schmooze and really just any microprotein. So we worked with the Salk Institute and the Allen Segatellian lab to see if we can detect schmooze using mass spectrometry in mitochondrial fractions. And we were ultimately able to pull out two unique high confident fragments derived from schmooze, um, one towards the N-terminus and one towards the C-terminus. This combination of immunological detection as well as proteomic detection gave us a high degree of confidence that the schmooze microprotein is in fact a microprotein and that it is within the mitochondria. So then the question was, okay, we have this SNP that associates with uh, Alzheimer's disease and uh, brain imaging. We see that the SNP changes the amino acid sequence of the schmooze microprotein, and we can detect the schmooze microprotein using a variety of different methods. And we did so detect it in mitochondria. Now the question is, what does this do? How do we figure out what some of the general functions of this microprotein is. The first idea was just predicting its structure. And so we used what's called uh, Rosetta Fold, which is on par uh, with Alpha Fold and really any type of structure prediction for at least schmooze and some of these microproteins. They give similar outputs. And in our case, when we look at figure 3A, we see that this schmooze microprotein predictive structure has an alpha helix towards the N-terminus, and then it has these two small um, alpha helix-like um, uh, twist towards the C-terminus. Now, specifically, if we look at that N-terminus alpha helix, it has a hydrophobic face or an uh, amphipathic feature. This is commonly seen in actually prokaryotic microproteins, which is interesting given that the mitochondria when mitochondrion is a uh, uh, bacterial uh, species in, in its ancient history. So it kind of makes sense to us that you have this microprotein that follows similar traits. And then if you look at uh, figure 3b, uh, you see that this is positively charged as well as disordered towards its C terminus. Uh, and all of these features align with what has been published for a variety of other microproteins, specifically within the mitochondria as well. So now we had an idea of, okay, we can detect this schmooze microprotein in the mitochondria. It also has biochemical features that suggest its function 
is related to mitochondria, uh, perhaps also in the mitochondrial membrane. Uh, we also wanted to see if, in general, if the schmooze microprotein correlates to any different phenotypes on the actual peptide level, separate from its genetic association. And this might, we thought, kind of pinpoint us towards designing different experiments. And what we showed in figure 4A, B, C, and D is that levels of schmooze, which we can quantify using uh, what's called an ELISA assay, using the same antibody that we use to detect schmooze via Western blot in figure two, uh, we can quantify levels of schmooze in the cerebral spinal fluid. Why it's in the cerebral spinal fluid, we're unsure if this is, uh, let's say, waste product of cells turning over, uh, if there's an actual function of this in the cerebral spinal fluid. This is, these are questions worth follow-up separate from the study. But when we looked at the levels of schmooze in CSF, we found that it correlated with age in individuals, correlated with total tau, and it correlated with phospho tau. Now, tau and phospho tau are early biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease, specifically phospho tau. And phospho tau, uh, it's implicated in Alzheimer's disease because the tau protein, when it's phosphorylated, it changes its conformation and it essentially collapses the neuron and results in what's called neurofibrillary tangles. And in some cases, this tau, because it's collapsing the neuron, can be released out into the cerebral spinal fluid. So given that we're seeing a positive correlation between tau, schmooze, and age, we think, okay, there's a genetic variation within this microprotein that associates with Alzheimer's disease. Now we have on the actual peptide level, uh, a link to Alzheimer's as well. And we also see that levels of the schmooze microprotein predict brain white matter in the same individuals. Uh, we think this is a neurobi neurobiological relevant microprotein. So the question was, all right, well, if this is a neurobiological microprotein, does it have action on the brain? So we worked with the Scott Kanowski lab here at USC who studies uh, rat brain neurobiology, specifically metabolism, feeding behaviors are a really cool lab. And they perform these uh, uh, ICB procedures where they can introduce certain constructs or a certain type of, um, let's say, biochemical candidates, in our case, so it, was a, it was a microprotein, uh, to the rat brain. And what we did was work with them to introduce schmooze into the rat brain and extract out the hypothalamus and extract out the hippocampus. Uh, the hypothalamus is going to be a region of the brain closest to the injection site, whereas the hippocampus is involved in memory formation, involved in Alzheimer's disease. And uh, when we look at, let's say, Alzheimer's disease animal models, one of the regions that accumulate a lot of amyloid beta plaques or just pathology was within the hippocampus. And what we found was that the injection of schmooze uh, promoted a few different biological processes in the form of differential gene expression. Uh, we found that in the hypothalamus, we're seeing different general um, biological processes differentiate, including like ribonucleoprotein complexes, uh, some different immune responses or neuron cytoskeleton responses. 
And then when we look at uh, in the hippocampus, we see some overlap, but we also see some mitochondrial processes pop out. So this is just pinpointing that there's some activity of the schmooz microprotein, whether it's directly involved in these pathways or in these processes uh, is, is not quite clear until you actually do targeted experimentation. So given that we had an idea that the schmooz microproteins within the mitochondria, we get some mitochondrial processes pop out. Uh, we then looked at what protein binding partners uh, exist with schmooze. And this is represented in figure six. And what we did here was give a lot of schmooze to neuronal cells, use our schmooze antibody to pull out schmooze from these cells in a way that doesn't disrupt its binding partner interaction network. When we did this, we submitted the sample to mass spectrometry to see, okay, when you pull down schmooze, what proteins bind schmooze in an unbiased way in mass spectrometry. And one of the top candidates that we found when we did mass spectrometry was this inner mitochondrial membrane protein called mitophilin. Now, when we try to validate this protein interaction, uh, both by pulling down schmooze using a schmooze antibody, as well as pulling down mitophilin using a mitophilin antibody, we're able to replicate that mass spectrometry data. When we knock out this uh, uh, mitophilin protein in the same cells while also simultaneously giving it uh, higher levels of schmooze, the effect of schmooze goes away, suggesting that one of the effects of schmooze is mediated by mitophilin. And the outcome that we chose was just mitochondrial superoxide levels, which is uh, involved in a lot of different processes, but also um, a, uh, an outcome related to mitochondrial function health, uh, oxfos as well. So we thought this was particularly interesting. And when we see schmooze, uh, given the, the same cells in the absence of promoting uh, monophyllin knockdown, we see that schmooze in and of itself increases basal oxygen consumption. It also improves uh, uh, the mitochondrial's uh, the mitochondrial spare capacity or the mitochondria's ability to couple ADP to ATP under stressful conditions. And this is illustrated in figure 6H. So that was an interesting, different uh, outcome for us, given that we expect a schmooze to be involved in mitochondrial biology, and the top protein-binding partner candidate ended up being an inner mitochondrial membrane protein uh, that uh, is involved in creating ATP and energy and sustaining mitochondrial structure. So we thought that was really interesting and we've wanted to finish up this paper by revisiting alzheimer's disease specifically in an experimental model now if you remember we're able to link schmooze levels in the csf to age and phospho tau but what we were limited in that analysis were, was that these individuals did not have dementia they were uh, a commonly intact group of donors who were very uh, kind in sharing cerebrospinal fluid. So we wanted to look at a human representative database of Alzheimer's disease. And so we went back into um, 
our collaborators' data, specifically in this case, it's uh, the Mayo Clinic RNA-seq data. They have what you can see here in figure 7A. Uh, in our case, they had 160 brains, almost half of whom post-mortem had Alzheimer's disease. And we're able to ask a simple question on the RNA level, gene expression level, is schmooze higher or lower in the temporal cortex of these Alzheimer's brains? And what we found was that schmooze expression was higher in Alzheimer's disease. If we look in figure 7b within actual neuronal cultures, not just within human gene expression of brains, but within cells that are actively living in culture, specifically neurons derived from induced pluripotent stem cells of donors who have an APP or an amyloid precursor protein mutation, in addition to a PSEND mutation, which is a mutation in the uh, beta secretase protein that cleaves APP to give rise to amyloid beta, which is the constituent of amyloid beta plaques. When we look at these cells, those two mutations increase schmooze expression by almost threefold. And this aligns with our slight increase of schmooze expression in the human temporal cortex brain in bulk RNA-seq postmortem. So we have an idea that maybe schmooze is involved in Alzheimer's disease pathology. So let's do a simple screening assay. Let's take neuronal cells. Let's fold amyloid beta-42 into these oligomers that represent a neurotoxic state. Let's give it to these neuronal cells and let's measure the percent of live and dead cells following this A-beta treatment. And then let's try to rescue this toxic effect using schmooze. And let's also see if the form of schmooze that associates with Alzheimer's disease through that SNP is able to protect it as well. And what we found in figure 7C was that schmooze given A-beta 42 to these same neuronal cultures was able to rescue about 10% more of these cells. However, the mutant form of schmooze, which we call D47N, given that SNP changes a 47th residue, it did not rescue these cells for reasons that we're going to explore in follow-up studies. But this is pinpointing that schmooze could be involved in Alzheimer's pathology, given these genetic associations, these biochemical associations, and the experimental data that we show in its ability to protect neuronal cells from amyloid beta-42. And then finally, we wanted to look broadly in three different models of the biological differences between schmooze and that, and we call it the mutant form of schmooze, but what we really mean is the form of schmooze that, is, that differentiates individuals who are at an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. So we looked at three different models in figure eight, and in figure eight A, what we did here was boost levels of schmooze, and in addition, separately schmooze D47N in neuronal cultures and just perform RNA-seq and see which genes are different and which genes, uh, uh, what those genes actually do that are different. And what we found was that the schmooze D47N versus schmooze in RNA-seq actually differentiated the, the mitochondrial intermembrane gene expression profile, as well as some other uh, mitochondrial processes and ribosomal processes as well. But we thought this was particularly interesting given that we were able to find schmooze in the mitochondria and that it binds uh, an, a mitochondrial intermembrane protein. And then we're able to, albeit less robustly, in the rat brain 
injection experiment. We also gave these uh, separate rats the Schmooze D47N uh, alternative or mutated version. And although the variance was slightly larger, we're also able to see that the mitochondrial inner membrane uh, gene expression profile also shifted. Uh, this, again, was not as robust as that in cell culture, but it does give us an idea that the inner membrane is also involved, at least in in vivo context. And then finally, in figure 8C, we went into the Mayo Clinic data again, which also includes mitochondrial DNA genotypes. And we're, we're able to post-mortem <clears throat> classify these donors, if they have the schmoo SNP that associates with Alzheimer's disease and faster brain thinning in certain regions, and we're able to see if there's differences in their bulk gene expression profile, similar to what we did in figure 8A and B. And each one of these dots that you see in these principal components analyses, these are individual donors color-coded by the SNP. And you can see that the red dots or donors post-mortem they kind of drift away from that center bulk region in the top right in figure 8C, which is suggesting that these individuals post-mortem with the SNP have a different gene expression profile, which uh, in, in my mind, I thought was pretty cool, just given how many factors can influence brain gene expression. And so my thinking was, well, you have this one mitochondrial SNP that's able to do this pretty strongly. That, that seems really interesting. Uh, and, and potentially really meaningful. When we look at what these genes are and what is actually separating these individuals, the genes map back to uh, really mitochondrial biology, the respirosome, the mitochondrial respirosome, the electron transport chain. Also, you see some ribosomal complexes pop up as well. Uh, ultimately, we see alignment of mitochondrial gene processes being different by the schmooze D47N uh, actual microprotein in three different models, which we thought was very interesting. So the, the, the takeaways of this is one, that mitochondrial DNA variation is involved in uh, neurodegeneration, both at the disease level in Alzheimer's disease and really prominently at the anatomical level, given some of our neuroimaging UK biobank data, and we're able to use this type of genetic hotspots to map back to previously missed microproteins. In our case, we were able to use this to find schmooze, then develop antibodies to detect schmooze, uh, try to detect schmooze using mass spectrometry, and then just very generally characterize this biology in a mitochondrial context, seeing that it promotes oxygen consumption rate binds mitochondrial membrane proteins and also changes gene expression related to uh, the mitochondria. So this is kind of a starting point. A lot more work has to be done to see specifically some of the mechanistic features of schmooze, but we thought, our group thought that this was a, a pretty rapid way to go from gene association down into uh, an actual uh, experimental level in the form of schmooze and all of these analyses that you see here. So that's really all I got. Um, I think I'll take any questions that you guys have, but hopefully this kind of uh, outlines our, our thinking process and where maybe the field can go. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Brendan. Uh, I really appreciate, um, you know, the presentation and how you described it. It uh, was really um, was really great to to understand the, um, how the project went about and the insights of this protein. Um, there was in the chat <laughs> like a little bit of discussion like about the name uh, <laughs> yeah i know it's a funny name yeah so uh i don't see the chat here but uh, actually i do see the chat here all right let me see what we got here uh, uh, okay so the yeah the name the name schmooze uh, so it stands for a small human mitochondrial open rooney frame over serine tRNA, but uh, we so our lab is is uh, is principal investigator is uh, Pincus Cohen, and so we thought um, we we have a tendency to name some of these microproteins um, in in humorous ways. We also have some other peptides that are not published yet. They also have some funny way, uh, funny names, but we just thought, we thought Shmoosh is kind of funny, uh, to be honest with you. There's really like no biological meaning behind it. I guess some people might be annoyed that there's no biological meaning behind it. But, uh, when we were talking about the name, we're like, oh, it's, you know, let's, let's Shmoosh sounds kind of funny. So we just kind of went with it. I, I think nobody will forget the name and the function <laughs> of this protein. It's way yeah. better than PIP1, to I don't know, you know. I mean, PIP is still kind of fine, but, you know, there are some protein names and uh, gene names that are kind of yeah. hard. As a student also, it's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's so many different right? proteins yeah, and everything that are kind of hard to remember. So this is, hopefully this is easier to remember. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. Um, so if people have questions, like uh, raise your hand or um, you share in the chat your questions or comment. Um, so Jared, um, he asked in figure 2C, I see another spike around um, 800. Is there a significance to that? So in figure 2C, this is the, uh, the mass spectra data from uh, mitochondrial lysates. And so in figure 2C, what you're looking at are the gamma and beta ionization, which then are used to map back really the sequential uh, uh, fragmentation of that particular peptide. So this is being, this type of spectra is being exclusively mapped back to that peptide sequence, um, that peptide derivative of, of schmooze. And there are no other peptide fragments in the human proteome that have the same sequence, which is why that you're seeing uh, the, these, these spikes. So that is the significance of that. Hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, great. Thank you. And um, is there um, maybe also, are you working on um, or will you, or will the lab will be working on looking at um, maybe um, Involvements in other type of disorders. Do you think it could be possible that this also involved in autism, a spectrum disorder? Since there's theories, or you know, that mitochondria are kind of involved. So, would you think that makes sense? Makes sense to look into that? Yeah, I think just given some of the general biology of schmooze, uh, specifically in neurobiology. Yeah, it's, it's possible. We don't really have any strong links to autism. Uh, 
it's possible that certain mitochondrial genetic signatures are involved in autism, uh, but we, we don't have a direct link to autism with this microprotein. But then again, we haven't really looked strongly. So right now, there's not much reason to believe it is, but it perhaps deserves follow-up. Yeah, uh, Joyce, Dr. Shah, Bella, join the stage. Please flash your microphones if you have questions. Yeah, I was just going to say um, it's very interesting, and I have a have a hypothesis that it could be that a lot of genetic conditions really have their significance, uh, possibly due to susceptibility to infections, either low grade undetected ones or obvious ones. And that, you know, anything that's a detrimental genetic mutation is likely to also make you less resilient and effective at fighting off microbes. Anyway, I was wondering yeah. what you thought of that idea. Thanks. And yeah, I really like that idea a lot. Uh, per personally, I, I didn't uh, show this in the PowerPoint. But I've been really interested in, in your point in like fighting off microbes or fighting off viral infections, uh, especially for like Alzheimer's disease and given some of like how previous pathways, especially related to cancer uh, in, in, the, in the, the 80s, how P53 was essentially found by studying uh, viruses. I, I've always been interested in what these like viruses or, or perhaps other microbes uh, can teach us about human biology, using that as like a perturbation. Um, in, in this case, given that, let's say, uh, like bacterial pathogens, but going back to like the viral story, and especially, especially in the context of, of COVID these days and some of the brain fog that we're seeing in COVID, uh, one of the mechanisms, at least for general viral biology, is that it kind of hijacks the innate cells ability via altering mitochondrial biology, specifically the mitochondrial antiviral signaling protein. Uh, it also kind of quiets down the uh, mitochondria's ability to produce energy via complex one. Um, that's some of the current thinking. And if that's the case, and it's also possible that you're seeing some of these mitochondrial encoded microproteins being altered, one of which might be schmooze as well. Uh, and I do think Perhaps given some of the like, trajectories of, of Alzheimer's disease and the resilience uh, in over lifespan of infections, uh, it's possible that this is also involved in that type of process. Um, those are those are really interesting follow up like analyses and experiments. Uh, it takes a lot of lot of effort and a lot of uh, thinking. So yeah, that's a great question. Thank you very much for the answer and for your work. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Bella. Um, thank you very yeah, much, Brent, for your work. Um, yes, it did take me back. I've not been doing research for a while, but there are two questions, perhaps not. Um, two questions I wanted to pose. Um, my research interest was in microglia, and that microglia is found mm -hmm. in all neurodegenerative diseases. Would it would would it be interesting to find out whether the smooth protein, um, its distribution in the microglia, because as for, if I can remember, the first cell that gets activated, and the second question is that as um, mitochondrial DNA comes from the mother, would yes. we find a greater 
proportion or differences um, in uh, material. Uh, um, how can I say this? Uh, I don't want to make it too long, so I'm trying to condense it. <laughs> so please forgive me. What it's I'm okay. trying to say is, yeah, because I know I could go on a bit. It's because it's so interesting the things you're saying, but it wouldn't be interesting to see the inheritance of other diseases that are from mother and where we can also look at the distribution of smooth DNA. Um, this, these are some points I, I was thinking about while you were talking and others, but uh, I, um, thank you so much for your work. It really sparked my interest. Thank you. Well, I, pr I appreciate your questions and your, and, your, and your two questions and comments as well. Uh, as, as, as it relates to microglia, I'm doing other projects in microglia, microglia cell cultures. Uh, we are looking at schmooze expression in microglia. We're also looking at microproteins in general in microglia because, as you pointed out, of course, it's reactivity. It tends to be involved in these plaque formations. Um, it, it can also uh, promote a, a micro hyperinflammatory environment as well. Uh, so we are looking at it. We don't have any data of pinpointing schmooze back to microglia at the current moment, but it is an ongoing uh, question in the lab, um, both in my current lab and uh, in, in labs that we're working with. And then to your second point with uh, the maternal focus and maternal inheritance, we are also following up on this in a similar context. What we're doing, given that the schmooze SNP and mitochondrial SNPs are maternally inherited, one of the questions that we have was what nuclear DNA variants interact with mitochondrial DNA variants? And specifically, we can look at like biological sex differences. Um, and the thinking that we have is there might be some genetic communication in the form of nuclear DNA variants that modify the effect of those mitochondrial DNA variants um, in a way that amplify some of the mitochondrial DNA variant effects, also in a way that promotes resilience and perhaps mutes or attenuates those effects. And that's going to be determined by the background nuclear genome. Uh, so we're, we're on ongoing investigating that uh, as well. Thank you. Oh, if I follow up really quick, thank you so much for this question and for this answer. I think that's really interesting, um, the communication. I, it's always something that interested me, but you know, I never came around to investigate that. And another thing is um, this protein and also the communication. Is there evidence that through environmental factors like stress or something um, that um, it's epigenetic factors kind of um, change the expression levels and so on mm. and how it's used and then also does it maybe pass on to next generation? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So as far as the epigenetic mechanism, one question that we have was looking at which epigenetic markers, uh, specifically DNA methylation, which methylated um, regions in certain nuclear nuclear genes associate with the schmooze SNP. So we're doing that and we're trying to see which of these methylated regions, what genes they enrich, and perhaps that might tell us that there is this interrelated biology, but also to your point, maybe that tells us 
how schmooze is its levels are regulated um to to your second point on uh inheritance so this so this particular snip isn't about uh on average 20 to 25 percent of ancestral european populations it's quite interesting because the more north geographically you go in europe the higher frequency of this schmooze snip for example if you look in like finland or sweden uh almost half of the population will have this snip and if you go southern down to around italy um you'll see that the snip frequency is around like 10 percent and under and then as you go more east towards asia uh the snip frequency goes even lower to around five to under 10 percent so it follows this geographical pattern that's quite interesting um, which is, suggests that during human population um, diversions that there was a potential selection for this uh, specific mitochondrial DNA variant that is, of course, going to be uh, environmentally influenced to the environment, I guess, in the, the northern sphere of the world, which is interesting. Can I just make a short point? Because I, I have to go. I just wish I could stay longer. And um, Brendan, you may be aware of the African Genome Project. Yeah, I am. Yeah. 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 And it'll be really interesting to see um, because of the diversity um, in Africa, you know, how that, that distribution also goes. And um, I followed you, and I'd be really grateful if you could message me um, with the, which lab you're working in, and perhaps we can um, keep in touch when I come back onto the market. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, let me, because I'm getting used to this app. Um, can you? Yeah, if not, I can, you know, I can, yeah, I can... help with uh, Bella. If yeah, you... that'd be great. That way I can follow up with you. I don't, yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah, don't if you both <laughs> want to share, like, if you want to share your email, Bella, then I can, if that's okay with you, Brandon, yeah, I'll of course. the introductory email. Okay, great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you for your comment. Thank you. Appreciate it. Can you hear yes. me? I see. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing your fascinating work with us. So my question from you is, uh, did you find out any specific complex get involved uh, through the process? I mean, we know that we have different complexes in mitochondrial. And if you want to take a step, uh, I mean, I was just wondering, do you have further information? Which complex? Uh, showed a more significant relationship between the Alzheimer and whatever you found. Also, in the next step, because we have some of the uh, work, like a mitochondrial transplantation that they are due for the hippocampal neurogenesis. And uh, when we are taking a close look, we see the differences between the complexes activity. And I wanted to know that you have any further information or about it or not, thank you. Yeah, it's a great, great, great question. I'm also interested in uh, the work you guys are doing with the transplantation. Uh, as far as the specific complexes, this is not published. We're ongoingly uh, investigating this in the lab. We have strong hints that the schmooze is specifically localizing to complex five. Uh, we see this in some native cellular conditions and we're following up on that now, uh, perhaps in a, in a separate paper. Uh, but that's very preliminary at the current moment. Um, 
And I'm sorry, what was your second point? I tend to forget things. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was you pointed out. I was just wondering because, for example, for transplantation is the same for one, two, and five. They are the most, and you mentioned about that. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, that complex five seems to be the target, but uh, we're still trying to rule out some of the limitations with that. But yep, good question. Good also, point. during your, I mean, about the sample that you had, uh, what about the gender, I mean, female versus male, how it was? So what we did is we looked at the, uh, like the biological sex differentiation, of uh, the SNP frequencies. We didn't really see any frequency differences. We didn't also see when you stratify um, differences by biological sex. Uh, what we did was control for biological sex in the analytic model, in our regression models, so it is included as a variable. Uh, the way in genome-wide association studies to approach this question is actually being like hotly debated. A lot of groups believe that stratifying by uh, biological sex, then performing those analyses, is going to give better biologically relevant information. One of the issues is that when you do this, you reduce your statistical power to find meaningful uh, variants. And so hopefully in the future, as more data is acquired, these types of analyses can be carried out in a stratified version. That way you can meet your statistical power. In our case, we did not see an effect of biological sex, but that could just be um, due to the current data at, at the moment. Perhaps in the future, uh, you, you will be able to see. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, Brendan. Uh, can you hear me? Hi, Beth. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, so, Brendan, I, I'm pretty familiar as a patient family around mitochondrial um, um, dysfunction, mutations not seen in other databases. So, it's a big you know, puzzle to solve. Um, have you seen any um, infant hypoglycemia? Um, in any complex four COX-2? And have you also seen, not just infant, but um, any hypersensitivity pneumonitis? And in both cases, pretty severe and unexplained presentations. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm not up to date on um, like infant mitochondrial DNA uh, models or, or, mm -hmm. or the literature. So I, 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 I can't quite answer that. It's just because I'm not familiar with yep. it. Um, I also am very interested in it though. And so, you know, um, you know, if you, if you ever want to share literature or your ideas and I'm, I'd be very interested in hearing what your thoughts are. Sure. Did you say you're at, at USC? Yeah, I'm at USC. Yep. Uh, okay. I'm in Los Angeles. Yeah. I'll figure out how to connect with you. Okay. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we lost John. Um, so please, if um, you maybe by accident uh, blocked any one of our friends here, which probably can happen, please don't because I really want that everyone that wants to learn about science can do so, please. Um, so please uh, unblock people that are, <laughs> that I, I don't know, 
so they can have access to it and, and also listen to the recordings. Um, so um, yeah, hopefully John can join us again. He had a few questions. Hi, Eric and hi, Nardish. Welcome to the stage. Please go ahead and ask your questions. Yeah, so in terms of uh, therapies or, you know, future work to develop therapies to counteract this, uh, I, I guess, this uh, in increase, uh, did you have any insights or intuitions or uh, crazy wild ideas? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, sometimes I have crazy wild ideas that are not good. So uh, I don't know if that's, if that's going to be ultimately a good idea per se. Uh, in, in our lab, we have ideas that perhaps some of these microproteins can be injectable therapeutics. There's a lot of peptide therapeutics out there. Uh, my lab, not my specific work, but uh, colleagues and former colleagues, they previously identified this mitochondrial derived peptide or mitochondrial encoded microprotein called MOTC. And this MOTC uh, peptide ended up being a template for a peptide analog that's being tested in phase 1B clinical trials right now for uh, uh, fatty liver disease. So there is potential promise in the form of a peptide therapeutic. There are issues with making these into therapeutics with different solvents. Um, also with this particular microprotein schmooze, whether it bypasses the blood-brain barrier, it appears as if it does not when you give it in the periphery. So if it is a peptide therapeutic candidate, then it'll have to be engineered to get through the blood-brain barrier with high efficiency. Um, that way, perhaps you can give it, let's say, to the periphery of a patient. Um, so that that's kind of the current thinking. Of course, you're going to have different ideas about like gene therapy these days, uh, but all of this is is relatively preliminary. Thanks. And uh, just you had the question. Um... Or there, so can we? I was yeah. just going to make a comment. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. But I was just going to make the comment that it, a lot of times people aren't actually blocked out of this room. And out of this room, what we're talking about, I have a, I have a strong belief that someone's not blocked. Right? There's, <laughs> I have a feeling that whoever it is isn't blocked out of this room. I just feel like that it's it's most likely just a glitch, and they probably need to reset the app, maybe even reset their phone. Because I have that issue with joining groups sometimes. I feel like I'm blocked. I talk to people, and then I just reset the app, and then I can get back in, no problem. Thank you so much for the information. Yeah, I, I felt the same, but just in case I moved um, a little back to the audience, maybe that was um, an issue. I don't know. <laughs> um, so... But yeah, thank you, Nardush, for sharing. And um, let me check the chat. Uh, if people have more questions, please, um, please do so. I know we've been going on for an hour, Brenton. I don't know if you have a few more minutes or if you need to go back to your work, then um, that's also good because- <laughs> I, have, I have a few more minutes. I have, a few more, uh, I have time for a few more questions. Okay, uh, wonderful. Uh, about the the population genetics, basically that you shared. Um, so, do you see a correlation in population also that kind of goes along with the expression um, 
you know, because you say it in Nordic regions, there is more than in, in, in different in southern regions less. Like, does it correlate with with prevalence of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's? Yeah, that's 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 a great question. When we look at our specific Alzheimer's analysis, we're using U.S. representative cohorts, uh, and they're pulling from those United States citizens with uh, different genetic ancestries. Looking at the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease, let's say in uh, Europe, or specifically looking at, let's say, that UK biobank data, those populations were not designed to capture uh, Alzheimer's disease diagnosis. And so as a result, the age of those individuals are not at the age range where you get late onset Alzheimer's disease. So it's possible that as these cohorts start the age, then you can really figure out certain populations within Europe, um, especially, let's say, with the schmooze SNP that has a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. And it's also possible that even though you have a higher frequency of the, of the schmooze SNP within the northern hemisphere, it's possible that those nuclear genetic ancestries interact in some fashion that uh, don't make that particular mitochondrial DNA variant as problematic, if you will, uh, and which is one reason why we're currently analyzing the interaction of the schmooze SNP with uh, nuclear DNA variants as well to see if we can parse out some of those uh, intergenome Nuclear communication DNA effects. Uh, um, what, yeah. what are you discussed about uh, your topic? Uh, maybe listen to the replay. Thank you, doctor, for coming. Um, we Because we had the full presentation, that's link, uh, the link is on top of the room. So feel free to go through it and maybe listen to it because repeating everything would be kind of a little bit too much for the audience that's been here for a while. And yeah, I have a follow-up question about that. So you, so Alzheimer's is more prevalent in females and then Parkinson's more, probably more in, in males. So um, how do, did you... So, so you said you didn't really see or a difference between male and female, but do you think that is that nuclear DNA interaction that kind of contributes to those differences? Or, or we know, like we had our guest speaker here from MRI professor that, um, that showed that like female hormones play a big role in Alzheimer's disease uh, and blocking um, hormones uh, could like improve um, in mice the um, Alzheimer's disease like symptoms so um, do you think it's like other factors that contribute to that male versus female or do you think it could be the interaction between the nuclear DNA that contributes to the prevalence differences yeah, I think it's, if I had to guess, yeah. it's probably all of the above. I, I also think in our case, it's a matter of statistical power uh, as well. So there's methodological limitations to why we perhaps didn't see it, um, in addition to biological reasons as well, like you mentioned with hormonal differences, also nuclear DNA interaction differences uh, as well. 
maybe genomic architecture of male versus female uh, nucleomes as well. Um, so I, I imagine it's all of the above and to, to parse all that out would be really interesting. And hopefully as more data is being acquired by all these different databases and you improve your sample size and your ability to detect differences across certain stratified uh, sub-populations that affects independent from schmooze, but just affects in general at the, gene, uh, the genetic level can be really parsed out. That's a, that's a good comment. Yeah, thank you. Um, hi, Ken, you you joined the stage. You will have one of the last questions, so please go ahead. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, Brendan, I was going to ask if, um, I guess, a mitochondrial toxin like, uh, I guess, metformin could affect schmooze, and if uh, peptide therapy is currently, like, I guess, the best way to deal with it. Like, um, I put a link for a cerebrolysin. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but, like, I heard it's good for Alzheimer's. Have you done research on this peptide? So our lab is funded to study metformin um, and some of the potential mediating uh, biochemistry between metformin and mitochondrial biology. The, the current thinking, at least from my knowledge, is that metformin uh, inhibits complex one. In doing so, it reduces reactive oxygen species generation. Uh, and then in theory, the thinking is then you have uh, an environment less susceptible to reactive oxygen species damage um, as well. In terms of metformin on schmooze, we have done a few experiments on this. Nothing's really clear yet. In theory, if you quiet down the mitochondria, then you might quiet down the uh translation of certain mitochondrial proteins, including these microprotein schmooze. We have looked at this. We see some differences, but this is all very preliminary. Uh, but it is an active focus in, in our current lab uh, with metformin and these microproteins. Good question. Uh, thank you. Did you do anything with the cerebrolysin or anything? No, we haven't. We haven't looked at that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Shah. Yeah, uh, if I may say, one of the things that they just uh, published recently that was about the production of the melatonin actually in the mitochondria, because we have a thinking about uh, producing of the production of the melatonin in a pineal gland. And that was very interesting because you mentioned about the black people and ch children, and this research was pretty much magic. I was wondering, do you have any information around that one too? Yeah, I wish I did. I, I don't, to be quite honest with you. So um, I don't really have any, uh, I guess, substantive comments on that. But I, I do think it's very interesting and something that uh, I definitely will be curious to learn more about. Okay, uh, great. So my last question would be, what is, you know, what holds the future for you? What are you working on or next on? Uh, um, you know, after your PhD, maybe what what are your plans? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, yeah, I guess like on a on a personal level, I I did wrap up my PhD. Um, I'm beginning a postdoc uh, next week at the Salk Institute in the Allen Secatelian Lab. Uh, he's one of the uh, uh, labs who intensively studies microproteins encoded by the nuclear genome. 
So a lot of my future work will be taking these same concepts in the Schmooze paper and scaling them up um, towards the nuclear genome and kind of, I guess my, my thinking is, is uh, acting as a bridge among these disciplines like bioinformatics, biochemistry, uh, neuroimaging, and all these big omics databases and um, trying to leverage the most of all of these really powerful databases and techniques in a way that can uh, promote discovery of more microproteins that may or may not have disease relevance, but uh, perhaps could have some basic biological important for future research. Well, congratulations, <laughs> uh, first of all. And um, yeah, that sounds really uh, interesting. And um, yeah, I feel like we need more people like you uh, to do these big data approaches and then um, more like an overarching approach. So um, yeah, it will be exciting. Congratulations for your new job also. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate and it. You'll come back and share some research with us that yes. you're going I'd to love do. to. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming. And we wish you all the best um, for your new start and get a lot of grants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you guys do well too. If you have any uh, questions, you know, um, feel free to reach out to me after this. And uh, if, if I didn't answer any of your questions, if you have more, just, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. Great, perfect. Um, so, yeah, uh, thank you everyone for coming, asking questions, sharing resources in the chat. Everyone, uh, check them out, uh, what people shared there too. And, um, yeah, uh, we will have, if you like discussions like this, follow the club if you would like. And our next one will be on Thursday with Dr. McCracken. Uh, advances in growing kidneys in the lab. I think Dr. Shah will love this one. <laughs> um, it's at 6 p.m. EST, and then we'll have on Friday, uh, Dr. Gira coming, talking about plasma oxygen production for Mars. Um, how he's planning to produce oxygen on Mars. So, um, yeah, thank you everyone. Thank you, Brandon. Good luck and congratulations again. And I uh, hear you all back soon. So yeah, thank you again and good luck to all you guys as well. Yes, thank you, Brandon and Katarina and everyone. Thanks. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you.